I hope the impression that you're getting from the talk I've been giving that when we talk about the Paramatana in Mahayana Buddhism, we're talking about something, we're talking about factors which can't be isolated. They actually all work interactively. They're actually a very good example of dependent arising. Remember, dependent arising is everything is interrelated. Depends on causes and conditions, and anything depends on causes and conditions is in some kind of interrelationship with other things. Hence, you know, when we look in on the third evening at Shunyata, the emptiness. One fact, perhaps I didn't stress, but I think it ought to be stressed, is that when we look at the world in terms of Shunyata, what we see is a world of interconnectedness. Rather than, the, rather than the world of discrete objects and things. <coughs> and this is certainly Nagarjuna's point, and those who come after him, that rather than, as I say, this world of discrete, separate things, without interrelation, what we have is a world of total interrelation. This is true, obviously, of the Buddhist teachings themselves. So one can't sort of separate the Buddhist teachings and say, well, can, well, we develop this and we develop that and we develop those in isolation. They all develop together. So as you see, I kept referring back again and again and again to renunciation, where we started. In the first of the Paramitas, when we talked about renunciation, it seems to occur at every juncture. You know, even when we start to talk about patience, it's there. When we talk about morality, it's there. And we can't talk about renunciation without morality. And we can't talk about patience without renunciation. Because, let's just revisit a bit of last night. One of the things, of course, that uh, we have to renounce is irritation. The desire for, how about this one? The desire for retribution and revenge <laughs> on others. You know, so we have to renounce these basically unwholesome states of mind. So, referring to that quote of Rilke that I gave you a few nights ago, we're in this world forever taking leave. And perhaps that's a good way to dwell in this world. As he says in another place, you know, be ahead of all your parting. I mean, what a way to live if one could actually do that. To be ahead of it, to be already there before it even happened. So in a sense you've already renounced. You don't have to let go, it's not torn from you. You've already let go. You dwell letting go in this world. And so it doesn't come as a great wrench, it doesn't come as a great shock. Now that's not to <coughs> minimise things like grief and loss and all the rest of it, but they're not held in quite the same fashion. And if we want to revisit that in the discussion, we can do, but I'm not going to dwell on that tonight. Where I do want to go is into the next of the Paramatars, which is 
Sanskrit word is virya, which can be translated as effort, energy, and vigor. It can have all of those connotations. Virya, just like all of these other forms, are is essential to the path. Without, let's just use the most basic of the translation, without you putting effort into what you're doing, you ain't going nowhere. It requires a degree of focus and effort to be put into that focus. Specifically, now let's mention the kind of traditional way of looking at this, not more with you perhaps. Traditionally, this is seen particularly in the effort that's required, for example, to eradicate unwholesome states of mind that have arisen. The effort that's required to stop unwholesome states of mind arising which, which haven't yet arisen. Alternatively, it means also the effort that's required to preserve wholesome states of mind which have arisen. And here's the last one. It all comes in four. And the last one is to encourage or put effort into encouraging wholesome states of mind which are yet unarisen to arise. So there we have it. Unwholesome states not yet arisen and arisen. Wholesome states arisen and not yet arisen. So this has a specific connotation within meditation. But let's take it wider. Because it has a specific connotation in ordinary life, doesn't it? But it's so easy when we're lazy and indolent to slip into those unwholesome states of mind. Just to nourish them. To give them life again, even when you thought you'd got over it. you noticed that one? When you think you've got over it, one rears its head and goes, not me! <laughs> even when you think you've overcome these unwholesome states of mind. And unwholesome states of mind, of course, are all of the usual. The ones that are all based in our three favourites, greed, hatred and delusion. All of those unwholesome states of mind, which are generally known as, well, in Sanskrit they're known as akushala states. All of those akushala states are rooted in greed, hatred and delusion. In other words, they have a direct lineage all the way back. So even your minor irritation has a lineage which goes through anger and is traceable all the way back to aversion. You know, basically it's saying irritation is I don't like. That's what it's saying. <coughs> On the other hand, wholesome states of mind have to be encouraged, to be fostered, to be nurtured. We have to work very, very hard to preserve those that we have. We also have to work very, very hard to encourage those to grow which haven't yet grown. Specifically, obviously, this, specifically, this means that we have to encourage the growth of, let's just take the two big ones, insight and compassion. 
These are wholesome states of mind which penetrate to the real, to what is. Compassion, as we are trying to weave things together again, compassion of course relates to bodhicitta, to the development of bodhicitta. (coughs) Fundamental to the development of bodhicitta, what the practice of the paramita. And so virya is at the very foundation of what we do, or what we don't do as is so often the case. Sometimes it's not just acts which are unwholesome, it's also omissions which are unwholesome. Not doing something, as well as doing something. And in philosophy that's a very popular distinction, acts and omissions. One can create, for example, bad acts, evil acts, by not doing what you know you should do. Not responding when you know you should respond. Not extending kindness or compassion when you know that's what's required of you. So it's not simply about (coughs) the acts. It's about the omissions that we engage in. And why do we engage in the omissions? Well, I don't think it's a great mystery to us. There's one big factor which I've referred to on a number of occasions in these evenings, which is the factor of laziness, which is obviously the very opposite of vigour. Now, (coughs) Shantideva, in this text, he highlights four particular cases of complete opposites of virya. The first one, of course, is a lie to laziness, which is sloth. <laughs> I actually come thinking they come in a dynamic view, as I said last night, sloth and torpor. <laughs> and so often that occurs, again, in your meditative practice. So much so. In fact, I've noticed Blossom talk of very much in early morning meditation. Not here, by the way, I'm not referring to you here. In early morning meditation, right? I've actually discerned two types of early morning meditators. What I call the swoopers and the dive bombers. The dive bombers go something like this. <laughs> <laughs> and you might know the swoopers as well, because they go... <laughs> And this is a, a distinct <laughs> example of what's meant by sloth and torpor <laughs> creeping in. Shantideva doesn't hold his punches, really. He says one of the other complete and absolute opposites to vigour, energy, effort, however you want to hear it, is clinging to what is vile. <laughs> I think it's a lovely phrase, isn't it? I mean, what is vile? <laughs> In other words, it's not just um, something which is rather unpleasant, but he's actually saying there are vile states that we cling to, that we hold on to, and this is the absolute opposite to putting effort into our practice. You know, so we, you know, we might be engaged in practice, but you still, you've got these little vices that you like to keep. 
And he's saying that's the very opposite of effort. So again, it's falling into you know, the lack of renunciation, too. The inability to give up, because it requires, and I think this is where the two go together, perhaps, that it requires energy sometimes. It requires effort to give up. Sankhavan, who we started off with, this whole retreat, his text I gave you a translation of. Sankhavan goes very far. He says, for example, one has to give up unwholesome friends. One has to renounce those that are going to lead you into wrong action. He's very clear about this. There's no kind of equivocation that one must negotiate with this or find a way around it. He just says, you give up. You have to put effort into giving up that which you know is going to lead you into unwholesome states of mind and generally they don't remain unwholesome, unwholesome states of mind because unwholesome states of mind come out in unwholesome action. Part of the reason why we look, for example, at the precepts <coughs> on the abstention from yeah. intoxicants, drugs, alcohol, whatever, is because it leads us into unwholesome states of mind. And actually, <laughs> I mean, it's usually in some of the, in most of the formulations, it's usually placed at the bottom, it's the very last thing, you know, the fifth precept. And basically it's saying, don't engage in this because it will cause all of the above. <laughs> You know, it will cause you to <coughs> possibly be violent, take life. You can see that, certainly. To engage, engage in false speech. To engage in taking that which is not given. To engage in sexual misconduct. Sounds like the perfect office party, doesn't it? <laughs> Basically. But the fifth precept is there. In other words, you have to renounce if you don't want to engage in all the above. So it requires, again, that giving up. We can't get away from it, can we? We keep circling and even in our effort, we come back to that which has to be renounced, that which has to be given up for us to move on. <coughs> the other thing he says that... Um, is the absolute antidote, and I think this is the interesting one, I'll take a little bit of time to explore this with you. The other thing we have to give up, as being the absolute antithesis of effort, is self-contempt. Now let that sink in for a second. You know, a kind of lack of self-respect. In fact, almost a loathing for ourselves. I think this is particularly opposite for us in the West because I think many of us do suffer from a sense of lack of worth, almost of feeling contempt towards ourselves. And so one of the first things perhaps that's necessary is the feeling that there, certainly within the Maitre Metta practices, which is to develop some feeling of kindness towards oneself, allowing yourself the 
virtue of non-virtue, if you like. Because we've all made mistakes, we've all been in places we possibly don't want to have been to mentally, physically, whatever. But somehow they remain with us and we abnegate our feelings of positivity towards ourselves with this loathing. I'm sure yeah, we've only got to introspect for a little while and there'll be bits of us that we don't particularly relish at all. Within the Buddhist tradition, the feeling of self-respect is absolutely vitally important for the development of moral behaviour, for the development of ethical behaviour, behaving well in the world. So, putting effort into developing a sense of self-respect is not wasted. So much so that the Buddha describes, well, one of two poles, but one of them certainly is self-respect. He describes them as Lokapala in Pali, which means they're guardians of the world. What a big statement. These are the guardians of the moral, ethical universe for us. He also calls them bala, or powers. Now you can see, particularly that, when we're talking about power, the power of self-respect, to act virtuously in the world. The lack of it can often be the self-fulfilling prophecy of I'm always going to engage in bad acts because that's the way I am. I have no self-worth. Interestingly, of course, this is one of the things that people who often work in prison have to instill in people who have long histories of criminality is some sense of self-respect, some sense of self-worth because they often severely lack it. They do what they think they can only do, which is criminal behaviour. And so self-respect becomes one of the major forces in the production of ethical action. In the Pali Abhidhamma, as well as in the Abhidhamma which is used by the Mahayana tradition. The Abhidhamma, for those who don't know, is the kind of great repository of psychological knowledge in the Buddhist tradition. Huge collection of works. In the Pali version, it's seven major treatises, all of which, as I often joke with people, have scintillating titles, like the enumeration of phenomena, (laughs) or the book of relations. If you ever feel you can't sleep at night, I can recommend these works. <laughs> they really are quite turgid. But, having said that, they're full of absolute psychological insight into the way they are, into the way that we act and respond. And it's often been claimed that this material is a kind of Buddha's eye snapshot of what the mind looks like. And it really is huge. I mean, I'll just give you a taster of the enterprise if I talk about specifically about this notion of self-respect. The first book and the last book 
I'll only talk about those because they're interesting. The first book purports to list, hence its title, the enumeration of phenomena, all of the possible states of mind you can go through. It lists out 121 different forms of consciousness. It lists out all of the dominance that make up our mental and physical state. It, for example, claims that for every conscious act that we have to engage in, there has to be a minimum of seven certain mental events occurring. And then the last book goes on to relate all of these, what's called chapatakas, which are actually mental events, mental states, in all the permutations that you can find them in in the mind. <coughs> I mean, just think of the enormous intellectual edifice that that is, even whether it's true or not. But it purports to show, in other words, the complete functioning of the mind. Now, coming back to my point, in the main listing in the first book, and this has been familiar with all of the people I've mentioned, Shantideva, Chandrakirti, Sankapa, all the thinkers, although they use a slightly different Abhidharma to the one that's used within the Theravada tradition, right at the centre of our psychological state for engaging in ethical action in this world. Notice we've gone back to the second of the Paramatas, moral ethical action. To engage in ethical action in this world, we have to have a sense of self-respect. Buddhaghosa, who's the commentator on this, describes the sense as so fundamental. It's something, he says, for example, that if we have it and we do something, it's not the judgment of others that we're worried about. It's the judgment of ourselves in our own eyes. In other words, if you engage in an action which you feel to be wrong, to have violated your ethical code, then it's not the judgment of others that you fear, it's the judgment of you about you. When you've fallen short of your ideal. And he also claims that having this sense of self-respect is almost tantamount to a judgment that we make about things. I mean, he gives a very vivid description, very, very vivid description. He says that having a sense of self-respect, he said if one was confronted by an iron ball smeared in excrement, you wouldn't want to touch it. In other words, you know to touch it, i.e. the metaphor for engaging in unethical action, would be in some way to pollute oneself, to actually defile oneself. And that's there in the judgment, automatically. Interestingly, if we think this through, then when we claim, for example, people who engage in evil actions, it's not so much they possess a quality 
which is the quality of evil, is they possibly lack something, which is self-respect. In other words, if you lack it, anything is possible. And so it requires effort. And if you like self-respect or, let's put a really old-fashioned word on it, conscience, is something to be nurtured. Is something to be, it's telling you something. We, call, we talk about, don't we, the call of conscience to do something. And that, in Buddhist traditions, is linked directly to our sense of self-respect, our sense of our own self-worth. Because when we lack it, when we engage in these actions, we lose our sense of self-worth. When we engage in bad actions, when we engage in unwholesome behaviour, unwholesome acts of body, speech or mind. Aligned to it also is another aspect, which is linked to self-respect, but also almost its counterpart, which is a sense of being with others, a sense of what's usually translated as fear of wrongdoing, can be translated as decorum. In other words, through my awareness of others, there's certain acts I will not engage in because they're antisocial, they fall foul of the moral code that we live by, and they're important for my relations with others. However, to simply engage in those moral acts itself can be unwholesome. If, for example, the mores, the morals of our society demand things of us, which it does, our society demand all kinds of things of us, that are often extremely unethical. And when those moral, when these moral values are demanded of us and we behave with a gosa, again, makes a very vivid metaphor. He says that if we are just performing dogs, doing what the state or our society wants of us, we're a bit like <coughs> prostitutes who are prepared to sell ourselves for whatever and to do whatever is required of us. It's a very striking image again that he uses. And also we know, <coughs> for example, that morals and etiquette politeness and behaviour can be taken to the point of alienation. There's a wonderful quote from, actually occurs in Henry James, The Wings of the Dove. I don't know if you've read the work, Wings of the Dove. Uh, he describes one particular character in it as, having, as being polite to the point of brutality. Have we ever met people like that? <laughs> In other words, doing all the right things with the wrong motive. In other words, you can be completely moral, completely polite, completely there with your etiquette, but still not engaging in wholesome ethical behaviour. 
ทโธยูฟอลโลว์ might be example of that I follow all the rules but I'm completely unethical self-respect coming back to this is the guard against us doing that so even when our society demands things of us when others perhaps demand things of us which might be within the moral framework it still might be unethical and we might decide through our efforts to preserve our sense of integrity not to engage in those actions the two spheres of decorum and self-respect act in dialogue I have to act in dialogue because there's no guarantee or guarantor that either pole will be right and again I hope I'm making the point that living the ethical life in Buddhism and we're back into the morals but it requires effort living the moral life requires virya right at its very heart it requires the examination and I don't mean intellectually examining I mean the examination in the sense of what do I do now how do I respond the one thing that we know is that being alive walking, talking moving through the world we're always in situations which are demanding responses from us always every situation is demanding a response that response requires appropriateness we can be so easily when we lose our sense of self-respect when we lose our sense of wholesome behaviour we can easily find ourselves engaging in truthless, sloth and torpor dropping back into familiar patterns simply because they are familiar and familiar patterns will continue to reassert themselves let us not underestimate the power of habit to keep reasserting itself to keep presenting itself in our mind as what we have to do to preserve wholesome states of mind therefore requires great effort to engage in ethical behaviour requires effort it requires vigour for those who are on the better side of the path it's not a, an optional extra it's something which must, must be there because otherwise what is going to stop you falling back into the same pattern those patterns are going to reassert themselves again and again and again let me come to another of Shantideva's antithesis to effort I'm sure this is one we've visited it's called despondency <laughs> yeah, when we're despondent depressed 
the one thing you know is that when you're in those states of disbelief, we'll take even the extreme state of depression, we're in the state of dis- despondency. One of the characteristics is a lack of will to do anything. There's no energy there to do anything. You know, one of the things that characterizes depression, particularly extreme depression, is people go to bed and don't get up at all. There's no will to engage whatsoever. However, before we get to those states, before we fall into despondent and extreme states of, of things like depression, then we can develop our practice in such a way as to guard against that happening, as falling into these despondent states. And remember, the one thing that characterizes despondency is also a kind of detachment from everything. Interestingly, it's an interesting word, the word detachment, because when again one looks at more popular works on Buddhism, often one of the things that's said to characterize Buddhism is detachment. I see that as being the very opposite of what Buddhist practice is about. Rather than stepping back, Buddhist practice steps forward into the heart of life, into the heart of what's going on. It's not cool, detached, lack of engagement. It's an absolute engagement with what is from your meditation practice to your ordinary daily waking activities. It's meant to bring us into the heart of what is, rather than pushing us to the boundaries. In fact, if you're pushed to the boundaries, chances are you're probably in a despairing or despondent state. And bearing in mind something I was saying last night, of course, that these despondencies, these depressions themselves are narratives which we inhabit. And one of the things about, and we'll come into this a lot more tomorrow night when we look at meditative practice, as it's conceived of within the Bodhisattva's path, is one of the things that we see from awareness practice when you start to look at the quality of mind even if that mind is so-called telling itself the story of depression, there are shades, there are tones. In Buddhist theory of mind, the idea is that there are just simply arisings and passing away of consciousness moments. That's all. Very quick, like this, firing all the time. And they don't all have the same tone. So even if the prevalent mood is one of despair, despondency, depression, or any other negative state, then it's not monolithic. It is not all of one feeling time. So even if one is in that state, surprise yourself. Because you might actually have a, a happy consciousness moment that pops up from time to time. Or one with less intensity, certainly. So it could go something like this, and I'm only giving you an example. Depression consciousness moments. 
Depression consciousness moment. Mild joy consciousness moment. Depression consciousness moment. Depression consciousness moment. Mild happiness consciousness moment. <laughs> Only you don't see them. Because the story you're telling yourself is the story of depression. The Gestalt psychologist actually was very astute at this. Um, Fritz Pearl, the one I mentioned earlier on today. There's a wonderful video from actually counselling somebody. And um, what he was very good at was pointing out contradictory behaviour to what people were saying. And he said, how are you today? And she said, I'm really, really depressed. He said, why are you smiling then? <laughs> and this went on for the whole thing, just pointing out contradictory behaviour. Because often what's going on is not the story that we tell ourselves. There is something else happening. Might be brief, and I'm not saying, and I'm not wishing again to do little, these severe mental states that we can get ourselves into, and we do get ourselves into them. But that they're not all-encompassing. That they have degrees and tones and variations and differences, only we don't see them. And coming back to see them, perhaps, requires degrees of effort. But it has to start before those states arise and perhaps if one is putting effort in now those states will not arise because you're already there seeing the differences each moment. It's good sometimes to check up on your mental state in a day and just watch and the varying shift. Which is why one of the reasons I keep saying to you by the way during the practices Check out where you are before you start off any particular session. See what things are around by you. And just spend a few moments at the end. Anything changed? Anything? Is the things the same? I'd be surprised if they were. But just check them out for yourself. Not with a wish to change or do anything about it, but just to see what's going on. And if there's a watchword for all of this, and I'll be bringing this up again tomorrow night, is what's going on? Most of the time, we haven't got a clue about what's going on for us until it happens. And again, that's the unexamination, which is why meditative practice, which is obviously the cornerstone of progress, not the only one, but as I said, one of the, the key parts of making progress, why meditation and the development of awareness has to be quite intrinsic to what's going on. I'll bring up one other aspect of this, which is there within the original language, which gets lost in the translation when we talk about mindfulness or awareness which is the word sati, which is in Anapanasati, mindfulness of breathing, or awareness of breathing. The word sati actually has the connotation also of memory, remembering. And I think it's a wonderful word, because as I said the other night, it also works well in English, because to remember means to bring back together. And scattered, confusion, fragmentation, back into some kind of wholeness or focus. And that's what you're doing with the mind when you're doing any form of satipatthana, 
using the Pali, Satipatthana, mindfulness training, is you're bringing the mind back from its scattered, you're remembering, recollecting, and recalling where you are. So bring yourself back into that moment. All of that, just hearing me say it, presupposes that you're going through the degree of effort into what you're doing. Rick, yeah. I don't wish to interrupt this slide, but um, you're mentioning um, subtle or risky. Mm-hmm. Makes me wonder whether that term is used because without any observing self, you're asking us in the meditation earlier to succeed the observer, mm-hmm. be the witness. Um, but if, if we don't believe in a, um, a permanent self, which is a kind of non-attached witness, then is it necessary to divide the mind into two? Um, and, and the awareness that we have of mental state is a memory to be remembering what this one is for. Yeah. Memory is absolutely vital. In the absence of a permanent fixed self in Buddhism, memory is what provides continuity. So that's a quick answer to your question, really. Memory is absolutely essential because without it, <coughs> And as memory is not a thing, again, it's a process. So it can't be right in the present, we have to be in what just happened. Yes, that's right. So memory is absolutely vital within this whole process. Hence the absolute, um, almost obsession with the development of awareness, which has this connotation, as I say, of memory as well. So it's that bringing together. And as I said last night, of course, that brings it together in the moment isn't an empty moment. It's a replete moment. It's full. Yeah, so there's, and I don't want to go into it again because it'll take us off into a tangent. But it's that way of living time in a completely different way. And that's again what's implied in the Buddhist path, living temporality in a very, very different way from a sense of the past is past and the future hasn't arrived yet. And here I am in the middle. Whoops, that was just a past moment. <laughs> so, yeah, the answer to your question is memory is absolutely vital in all of the process. I've got a question which is similar to this. Do you want to look at that now or do you want to carry on doing this? Well, since you've raised it, <laughs> let's deal with it, if I can. So, um, <coughs> full time with the meditation today, and what um, it's like that. Um, I've been doing a similar practice to what we've been doing for some time, mm-hmm. and it seems that those thoughts happen. Often, the thought thinking or the not thinking thought, thoughts are happening. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's some sense of, there's some sense of, some sense of me is separate from that in the background. Mm-hmm. And um, if I actually want to engage with thinking, it's really quite difficult. Mm-hmm. 
Too much on brain, and that that sense is is brain dead in terms of thinking. Quite difficult to you know to get that together. So there seems to be this moving back and forth. Mm. It's quite variable. It's not one or the other. Can be sometimes involved in the thought, sometimes completely in the sort of arrangement. And sometimes without the sense of self. Right. So what is, what is it? What is it then that's moving between those things? It's like looking at it from what could be the model state about consciousness, about the model of the mind in like, you know. How long have you got? <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those questions again. <laughs> um, bear in mind, I mean, let, me, let me just preface whatever I say by bearing in mind that when you say what is the Tibetan Buddhist model of mind, well, there are loads of them. Lots and lots of them. Depends on what, which position, depends on what the underlying philosophical position that the school takes up. So, for example, just to give you two examples, uh, the Galukpa school, which is primarily the school from which I've been teaching, the Galukpa school will follow the school of what's called the, uh, the middle way, the Madhyamaka. Whereas the Nyingma school, the some of the Kagyu schools, will follow the school of Chittamatra, consciousness only. And, for example, in the sort of problem you're talking about, you'll say it's the movement between different forms of consciousness, of which they delineate eight forms of consciousness, one of which actually gives rise to this world of delusion as we know it which is called the Alaya Vinyana. So it's the store of karma which gives rise to the world and the world is like a magical illusion in front of us. And so what you're talking about is the movement for this particular school between levels of consciousness. That's all. And there is one substratum consciousness, which is the real consciousness, which again is the ground awareness. Again, you're introducing something which is not within that tradition. This is why it's so complicated, which is why I joked about it and said, how much time have you got? Because this is... Yeah. So it's when this thing that's moving, it's the it's just a regression of watches that feels like a self. What I mean by that, have you ever played this silly game? I'm sure you must have done. You know, I know that 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 I know. <laughs> and you can go on. <laughs> it's an infinite regression. Until, unless you can find something which stops the regression. Now, that sounds all terribly philosophical, but the practical point is, within the Mahamudra tradition, within the Dzogchen tradition, that there is, because there is a, a ground of non-reflexive awareness, which in a sense, there isn't a watcher underneath it. It allows all the watching to take place in the first place. Yeah. And then, 
enough and enough place that that's, that's um, the end for you. It's all that. Yeah. yeah, it's all that. But that then, then experience within, a, within an individual's consciousness at that point, the, the sense of an I drops away completely. Yeah. There is no I in the field of. But it looks as though it's at another level. That's exactly right. And I think this is important for everybody to hear. It looks, it appears as if there is a solid observer, a watcher, a thinker, a doer behind it all. And what these traditions are saying, in fact, the whole emphasis behind Mahamudra, behind Dzogchen, behind Majamaka philosophy is to make you aware that the whole thing is a play of emptiness. Now it's not to say there's nothing there, it's just that there's no solid substantial thing there, and at all. Because awareness is not a thing. It can't be made or turned into a thing. And so the basis of the mind is fundamentally pure. Everything that happens to it is adventitious. It's not of the nature of the mind. At all. And even those things which are happening themselves lack intrinsic awareness, or intrinsic existence, I should say. Mm. So, so, in a summary, it's, it's like we're not thinking. Thinking is occurring. Thinking is occurring. That's right. Well, not in emptiness, think, thinking itself is empty. Yeah. <laughs> so let me really follow this, because I, I hate sort of people to lose this. Can't follow it. Alright, I mean, it's, it's quite simple. What? <laughs> it really is, it's very simple. Can I just say this before we, we get into another question? It really is very simple. The one fundamental thing that characterises thought, thinkers, things, is they all lack intrinsic existence. They don't have any substantiality to them, except conventionally. So, of course, we can speak of an I conventionally. You know, if I was walking around saying, there is pain going on. <laughs> you know, actually, it's much easier to say, I'm in pain, <laughs> isn't it? You know, but the reality of it is there is no substantial I beneath the pain at all. Can you hold a second? <laughs> yeah. But all of it lacks intrinsic existence. The thought, the pain, the thinker, anything we want to substantiate as being a thing, all lack intrinsic existence. That doesn't mean they don't exist, by the way. That is not the point. They all exist, but it exists in a fundamentally different way to the way that we think it exists. And if we understand that, and I mean really, really understand it, then we cease to grasp in the same way. We cease to hold on to it. So it's the perfect and absolute antidote in these forms of Buddhism to the grasping, which of course the Buddha identifies as being one of the primary causes of Dukkha. In fact, it's synonymous with profound insight. But to really see that, and to know it, <coughs> and to be living it, 
is, you know, to use the old translation, is to be living in a state of wisdom about the way things are. Because we see they are just arisings and passing away, and hence the reason why emptiness and dependent origination are synonyms. They mean exactly the same thing. Anything that's dependently originated is empty. And emptiness itself is a dependent origination. Do people follow that? No? (laughs) I think it's simple, but... (laughs) There was a couple of questions before you said that. The problem is that. Is this idea that thinking is a sense in Buddhism? As opposed to, you know, they say there are, you say there are six senses. Well, well, it's the idea that the mind is an organ, basically. Just like the sight, the hearing. You know, the fact the ear is a sense organ for hearing, the eye is a sense organ for seeing, or well, the mind is a sense organ for which sense is thought. So thought is external, being sensed, just like light or whatever. Yeah, it's not intrinsic to the to the organ itself. And so the fundamental nature of the mind that keeps trying to stress to you remains unchanged by whatever appears in the mind. And that's particularly characteristic of these schools which stress Mahamudra. You know, Mahamudra, the seal actually, which is stamped on existence, is that they all lack intrinsic existence. That's the seal. And that's what we are trying to find <laughs> in these practices. <coughs> and then to that. <laughs> well, I, I just thought of what you were saying about memory before it was very important in relation to this, because if your if your sense of I is based on what just happened, mm. then um, actually by <laughs> losing memory of what just happened, that brings you into this moment where you don't exist. Mm. But you do exist. But you don't exist in the way you think you do. You don't exist in that, <laughs> in that memory story kind of way. No, that's right. But the point, I mean, the point I do really want to keep stressing to you is not the case that you don't exist, it's that you don't exist in the way that you think. Sure. That's all. But that's very unsure that that seems kind of important. It's tremendously important. Yeah, it's actually losing that memory that brings you into that moment. Yeah, losing attachment to the memory. That's the thing. Because the memory reified or solidified Mm -hmm. creates the idea of a solid thing which is passing through all of these consciousness moments. Where in fact all it is is continuity. That's all. Remember, that's all we are. I mean, wonderful title to um, somebody called Stephen Collins' book called Selfless Persons. That's what we are. We're still persons, but there is no underlying substratum to it. That's all. Attacking this particular problem is very direct and certain. Your, your favorite thing that 
Sorry, I didn't hear the last bit. Yeah. Okay. Uh, the, this thing that has no intrinsic, you know, mm-hmm. has got to be in order to know how to place the effort. Mm-hmm. So I want to ask you in, in the, somehow to give me a, your experience that perhaps you no longer do it, but when you were beginning, let's say you were in a, a, a meditative state, that kind of clarity, that kind of, uh, well, I won't say, even that, if you like. Mm-hmm. And something happens that brings up the, the irritation, the sensation of irritation. Mm-hmm. What did you do in the training? How do you train this? So that the emotions, in other words, these things that, that, that make uh, me uh, have a these negative states, or these I'm habituated to making myself have it. What do you do? What is the training that you do to look at this and and so that it becomes other? Uh, this again, it's, 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 yeah, I think you're using the right word. It's a training. It's a discipline. It's a training not to identify. No, no. It's a physical. Now it's too late. <laughs> <laughs> It's physical now, it's in your body, it has a rhythm. Mm-hmm. This negativity, this, this hurting, this pain. Yeah, but well, how, so how is that so different from, for example, sitting here having a pain in the knee? You don't have to send your whole consciousness and identification into the pain in the knee. No. You can dwell with it in a different way. And really, if I'm extending the metaphor, that's exactly what's going on with any severe, turbulent emotional state. Uh, emotional state. You're learning to dwell with it in a different way. The first thing you immediately do, training, is you don't act on it. No. Right? So that's taken. You don't act on it. So therefore you have to come into a relationship with it. You know, one way of looking at it, for example, that would be within, say, the tradition we're looking at in this retreat, the Mahamudra tradition, that is a thought. Nothing else, it's a thought. A thought of irritation, a thought of anger. And that thought isn't of the true nature of the mind. So, it's a case of refocusing. And that's what we are attempting to do in some of these meditation practices, is refocus. So we're not identifying with the thought, we just allow them to be. A thought is a thought, whether it's a good thought or a bad thought. 
That's all it is. That is not the ground, and it's not the nature of your mind. You're refocusing. Yeah. You're you're redirecting attention away from the thought to that which allows the thought to be in the first place. Would you give me an example? The awareness allows the thought to you know, the thought to be witnessed in the first place. But you've refocused it. Yeah. You've refocused your attention. Your 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 being rather than being with the thought. The grinding is going on in the, in the stomach and the chest. Mm. Yeah. You are not grinding. Yeah, you're not it. And they have no substantiality. Now, again, this is not easy. I'm not pretending it is easy at all. Yes, I know. But it's not easy. And it requires training and it requires diligence and it requires what we've been talking about tonight energy to keep on trying to refocus and move away from that automatic identification. Now, different traditions will have different answers. I'm giving you a kind of Mahamudra answer tonight. The other way of doing it is progressively by lessening the link between the contact, which is whatever is going to irritate you, and the arrival of the irritation. So you're progressively creating a gap between the two. You're going to a cave. No, 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 no. I'm not talking about things like that. I'm talking about just ordinary practice. Just day to day. Looking at thoughts that arise, sensations that arise. What happens? What's the automatic feeling? Do you identify it as being unpleasant? If you identify it as being unpleasant or pleasant, you can actually start to lessen the reactivity between the contact, i.e. the mind coming into contact with a particular thought or sensation and the reaction that's not automatically produced. Now only awareness can do that, is actually create a gap between the stimulus and the response, because that is all the mechanism that we're operating on. Stimulus response, stimulus response. You know, good stimulus, good response. Bad stimulus, negative response. That's all. So we're really, really rather conditioned to do this. And being conditioned things takes a lot of deconditioning. Yeah. I do, I'm very fond, actually, of why, why is this all so difficult? And I'm going to take it slightly out of context. But, I mean, Wittgenstein had a wonderful thing. He said, that, you know, why is philosophy so difficult? He said, we've got ourselves in such a mess it's a bit like being a knot. You know, if you want to unpick a knot, how do you do it? We have to work backwards through it. And that's what we're engaged in, the working backwards. We're in the knot, so how the hell do we get out of it? Well, you're going backwards through the process. Untying it gradually. But it does happen gradually. And two requirements, patience and effort. <laughs> Um, I just wanted to ask a couple of short questions about the uh, practice. Sure. Um, and uh, well, when 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 you're meditating on the on the breath, for example, and you get lost in a thought, um, often you can bring your attention back to the breath or whatever object it is. 
In this particular instance, yeah. Okay. yeah, we'll even move away from that model towards the end of the week. But this instance, that's your anchor. The, right. the, the feeling of calm is still points within all the furore of the thought. Within that still point, um, thoughts are still might still be arising. Yeah, of course they will. Yeah, no problem. And, and they might not, maybe, because sometimes I've had instances where yeah. there's not a lot of thought, just sensations and feelings of. Yeah. But when you identify them as sensations and feelings, they're a thought. <laughs> even yeah. even it's that. Conceptual. It's not not on the same not on the same level. Yeah, well remember, thought doesn't all, when we talk about thought, it doesn't always have to be simple constructive thought, you know, what you call conceptual thought. Thought is in the identification mm-hmm. as well. Thought is just in the identification of, say, something as being pleasant, unpleasant. Okay. That's all. Yeah, that's a very, very fundamental, rudimentary kind of thinking that's going mm-hmm. on. And it's going on for us continually, because that's the way we divide up the world. Pleasant, unpleasant, neither pleasant or unpleasant. Do you include an image as thought? Sorry? Do you include an image as thought? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you said earlier that there were some Buddhist traditions that believe in a crown level of being or consciousness, right? Yeah. How does that differ from the doctrine, the doctrine of ethics? Uh, because again, it's not a thing. It's um, it's more of a process. I mean, when we talk about awareness, it's not a thing you can pin down and say, "Well, this is the kind of thing it is." It just is, and it's acting. It's active all the time. It's not as if it's a static thing. Now, I think the, the main point of this, for those of you kind of philosophically minded. Um, is that when we talk about the ground of awareness, even in Zogchev, it's not static, it's still a, a phenomenon within time. When most people talk about essence, it's a phenomenon outside of time. In other words, it doesn't change, but all change takes place on it. Now, awareness itself, which underlies things, is only whatever object appears to that's all. Just like consciousness itself, which is a temporal process. So the big distinction between the two and why it isn't essence in, 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 a, in, in a kind of nutshell is because one is temporal and one isn't. One is within time, one is outside of time. That's the main reason. One, one last question. Um, Going back to this model that you were talking about before, what is what would enlightenment or awakening be in terms of that model? Would it be 
uh, a permanent um, cessation of the sense itself? No. <laughs> You're asking about awakening, that's an interesting one. <laughs> um, People can have very deep insights into these, you know, permanent uh, emptiness, mm. not self, yet suffering arises maybe just as strongly as it did before. You see, the class, let, me, let me come to the basic formulation, and I won't move away from this this evening, because I think this is absolutely important. What all we're talking about here within all of the traditions is with the attainment of awakening, there is the cessation of that which keeps samsara, which is characterized by dukkha, going. What keeps it going is greed, hatred, delusion. It's the extinguishment of that which is the awakened process. Now what arises in its place, of course, are its opposites. So which is why we have nirvana being characterized by wisdom, compassion, and generosity. And so, insight, if it remains at an intellectual level, cannot do that, because insight is only there to cut one thing, which is, insight is the antidote to real delusion. And it's from delusion that we get the greed and the hatred, too. Don't those, and this, this arising of the greed and hatred, and this arising of grasping, is coming, as far as I see it, from the sense of self. Well, the sense of self is predicated on the greed and hatred, because it's what I want and what I don't want. In other words, it's the fundamental ignorance or delusion about the nature of reality which gives rise to the behaviour which then characterises or creates samsara for us. It's very simple for us. I mean, what we are is we're rooted in those three conditioned factors. And if we're rooted in those three conditioned factors, factors we're going to continue to give rise to behaviour again and again and again, which is characterised by being dukkha. And it's only with the eradication of those which is talked about in all of the traditions, the extinguishment of the three fires. That's what nirvana is. It's the extinguishment of the fires which keep samsara going. And which gives rise to the idea of the self. So hence, when we look at the three marks which are supposed to characterise samsara, then it's dukkha, impermanence and lack of self. That's a character. Yes. Okay, so what what is it that removes the the energy or whatever it is that cr- that's creating this creation in the Whatever is it what removes it? Yeah, what understanding. Sorry? Understanding. Inside. Inside. Yeah. Inside. And, and also, within these traditions, within the traditions which I'm teaching 
from within the Mahabharata tradition or Tibetan Buddhist tradition, then it's the union, they say, of insight and method. Now, method is compassion. That's the way of wayfaring, if you like, in the world, is through compassion. But compassion has to go with insight as well into the nature of reality. And those two in these traditions, the union of wisdom and method, is what overcomes. So it's not sufficient to have wisdom? No, no, not at all. Not, not at all. As, as said within the Spent tradition, I think I quoted it the other night, wisdom without compassion is cold and heartless. Compassion without wisdom is sloppy. That's a paraphrase, but I think it'll suffice to make the point. The two have to go together, the development of the two. That is what characterises awakening or the Bodhisattva path in the Mahayana tradition. So in other words, if I took the six paramitas, we could divide them into those which are method and those which are insight. Now the latter two we're going to deal with over the next two nights, concentration and wisdom again, are exactly that, they are insight. All the other parts are method, the development of morality, the development of generosity. Yeah. All these parts, even including Virya, which actually spans both. <coughs> Yeah. It's quite simple, isn't it? <laughs> Took a long way out to get there, but we got there in the end. <laughs> Let me finish. The Buddha says, cease to, cease to do evil, learn to do good, purify the mind, and that is the teaching of all the Buddhas. Nothing else. Everything else is a big, lot of extreme exploration to really understand what is meant by the cease to do evil, learn to do good and purify the mind. Now, if it's helpful in your practice, that kind of stuff, that kind of analysis, then use it. If it's not, don't. Just do the good deed and purify the mind. Sounds like a good place to finish, doesn't it? <laughs> okay, let's do ten minutes of sitting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.